All right, if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 3, we will be there today. So we're going through this letter that Paul wrote to the Christians in Corinth. Um, And this is the second longest letter in the New Testament. And Paul is going to cover a lot of ground, a lot of topics, a lot of issues, as we'll see over the next many months. Um, But these first four chapters that we've been going through have really focused on one issue, one concern. And that is the problem of underestimating the power and effectiveness of God working through the gospel message and overestimating the power of mere men, mere women, to do what only God can do. So there's this this issue of underestimating God, underestimating the gospel, and overestimating what mere humans can do. So that's the big idea of these first four chapters that we're in the middle of, and Paul is hitting it, combating it, correcting it from various angles, as he's going to do today as well. But before we get into chapter three, we need to get up to speed, kind of get our bearings of what we covered last week in chapter two. So in chapter 2, we saw that coming to truly see and behold and understand and accept God through the gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified is not something that we have the power and ability and wisdom to do on our own. That we don't have, that we don't just arrive at this using our own wisdom and understanding and common sense. Rather, the Spirit of God must work. Now, the Bible is also clear that we have responsibility in this. We must seek, we must hear, we must look into the gospel, confess our sin, put our faith in Jesus. We must do all of these things on our part. But Paul, in in chapter 2 and throughout this, kind of pulls back the curtain, if you will, kind of looks behind into the inner workings of our salvation on God's part, and we see that the Spirit must open our eyes if we are to see must soften our hearts and our pride and our trust and reliance in ourselves and lead us to do something that we wouldn't naturally do on our own. Lead us to see God for who He is and put our hope in Him and live for Him rather than ourselves. And all of this is because, as Paul is very clear, is so that no man might boast in, so there might be no boasting in men. So no human being might boast in the presence of God. But Paul says at the end of chapter 1, rather let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And we've looked at this term boasting. This means uh, glorying in, making much of, putting your trust and confidence in, relying on all of these things that God is seeking to, to work in us to do towards Him, in Him, rather than ourselves or any other human being. So that's what Paul has just said. Now, it is obvious that Paul considers the Corinthians to have received the Spirit and to have, to have the Spirit within them, to understand the things of the Spirit, to have confessed Christ as Lord and Savior, or at least many, if not most of them. Uh, he just finished his chapter 2 by saying, we have the mind of Christ. We are those who understand the things of God. 
He's going to begin chapter 3 by saying brothers, which is a term of affection for fellow believers. So he's assuming or giving the benefit of the doubt that the Corinthians truly have the Spirit, are people of God. And that's important because as we get into chapter 3, uh, we see that there's a problem. Their lives are out of step with the Spirit. So that's the issue in chapter 3. Um, it also brings up an issue that we saw back in chapter 1 as well. So we'll start with verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. Read the first four verses. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, as people of the Spirit, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Not in the power and way of the Spirit, but merely in the flesh, in a human way. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So the big idea here. The big idea that's behind this, that's assumed here, is that people with the Spirit, spiritual people, all true believers, will live differently than those without the Spirit, right? He's saying something's not right here, something's, something's out of whack. Your lives don't match what you claim. Those whom God saves, God changes. Not all at once, but increasingly over time. And not just in our own strength, but in the strength of God. Uh, what God is after in our lives, what God is after in this world, is not merely to save people for eternity, but then leave them unchanged in their desires, in their loves, in their hearts, in their behaviors. The, the same spirit that God uses to awaken us and bring us to himself is also the spirit that changes us changes our desires, strengthens us, equips us. And so as Paul looks at the Corinthians and hears about what is going on among the Corinthians, um, where there should be evidence of the Spirit, there's not. Where they should have been um, ready for more solid food, he still needs to feed them the milk of basic Christian doctrine and ethics. And notice that Paul is not content with their state. And neither should we be content merely to remain at the level of infant, baby Christians our whole life. Thankful for what God has done. Yes, we confess Jesus is Lord, but eh, we're good there. Not, don't really desire, don't really want to, to grow up into our faith, to grow up in our understanding, to have our lives be changed by Jesus. Um, to, draw, to take the analogy that Paul gives uh, there's a place for milk. There's a place for the milk of learning the basics of following and loving Jesus, just as there's a place for baby food. But when adults are eating baby food, it's out of place. Something's not right. When those who have been following Christ for a while and are claiming, like the Corinthians, to be very spiritual, that's one of the, the things about the believers in Corinth. They claim to be very, very spiritual. They claim to be very knowledgeable, but when their, their lives 
reveal jealousy and strife and these divisions that, that we're going to look at. It's unfitting. And one of the reasons that this is such a concern is that the church that is meant to be a witness to God looks just like any other gather, gathering of people. And people look at the church and look at these believers and don't see anything different, and apparently it's all a sham. Apparently con confessing Christ as Savior doesn't make, make any difference. It's just something some people do. Maybe some people are kind of wired towards that, but it doesn't really change anything. And to take this even a bit further, notice that Paul does not think that this is merely an individualistic, personal concern. Like, Paul steps into this. He, I mean, Paul is the one who planted the church, and he is a pastor, but he takes some responsibility for the lives and maturity and the witness of these believers. He's not content to just leave it as is. Likewise, all of us who claim Christ have some responsibility in the growth and the maturity of the believers that God has put in our lives, particularly those that we have gathered, that we gather with, and that we've committed to in the local church. Um, part of the purpose of the local church is to affirm and oversee and give witness to the, the faith and the life of other believers, and to keep our eyes open to the lives of other believers who have claimed Christ. Do they give evidence to that confession? I would say that this is one of the areas that we tend to be much more influenced by our culture than we are the Bible. In our concern for individualism, self-sufficiency, our tendency to think that our faith in life is merely our concern and no one else has a say in it. Now, you can go too far down that. We are, of course, will one day stand before God and God alone. And God alone will be our defender and God alone will be our judge. But a God has also given us one another to be mirrors, to help us see our blind spots and to be guardrails and signs to warn us and correct us and encourage us if we go off course. I sometimes put it like this. You can certainly put too much trust and make too much of the opinions and the, the judgment and the authority of others, of course. And our society is very on, is on high alert about that. Like, no one else gets to tell you who you are and all of this. And there's truth in that. But you can also put too much weight and trust in the opinion and judgment and authority of yourself. At a very, very basic level, I think we can all agree that being around someone who never thinks they're wrong is difficult. And so if we're to be healthy, if we are to grow, if we are to have our faith proved, we need other believers in our lives. We need the presence and the community and the words and the witness and the reminders of other believers. And this is what Paul is doing for the Corinthians. He's not just, he's not just seeing these problems and sitting back and said, well, I did what I could. They, they know what they ought to do. He's not even just saying, well, the Spirit will work. I don't have to do anything. 
No, he's entering in. He sees that he has a role in their continued maturity and growth. So that's the problem in general. There's a gap between their being of God, being people of the Spirit, and their lives. But what is the issue in particular? What is out of step in their lives? And so in verse 4, Paul says something that we've heard before, if you were here when we went through chapter 1. Verse 4, he says, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So at root, uh, the root of this issue here is their, their misguided trust in mere men, in teachers, preachers, ministers of the gospel. Their overestimation of what mere men are capable of. They apparently think that while the gospel message is a mes- message about God, a message from God, it's now fully in the hands of humans to make it effective and successful. We need gifted teachers and preachers and communicators and influential platforms and ministries that can take this gospel and make it work. Um, I used the analogy a few weeks ago about uh, the toys and tools that you get that are either batteries included or batteries not included. Um, And the gospel comes with the power, the batteries included. It doesn't need us to make it effective. Now, up until this point, Paul's priority in combating this error is to highlight what God can and does do. Is to say that there is power in the gospel. The word of the cross to us who are being saved is the power of God. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So Paul began by highlighting that there is power and effectiveness in the gospel even when it goes out and it is rejected. Even when it is called foolish and offensive and insignificant. There is power in the gospel. Through it, God calls and saves and radically changes people. The Word of God is living and active, we are told. Faith comes through hearing. But here, Paul kind of considers the flip side, the other side of the coin of that argument, the complementary truth. And that is, what do What can, let me put it differently, it has to do with what Christian leaders, teachers, and preachers, what all men and women, what you and I cannot do. We know what God can do and does. What can we not do? In essence, what is the nature of Christian leadership, of Christian influence, of Christian authority and pastors and teachers and and leaders. What are they capable of? So let's work through these last last verses here so that we understand what Paul is saying and then we'll draw out a few conclusions. Verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? So again, what is the nature of a Christian teacher and communicator? Uh, that's That's who Paul and Apollos were to the Corinthians. Paul had planted this church Paul was very familiar with these Christians. Apollos came in after Paul. He was a very 
gifted orator, and he had followed up on Paul's work and continued among the Corinthians. So what are such men and women capable of? What can we credit them with? Paul goes on, servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. So we can say that they have a role. They have a role to play. There is, the Lord does call and use and work through Christian teachers and preachers and leaders and communicators. But they are servants of God, and they have been assigned a role. And any fruit that comes from that role has also been assigned to God. And then Paul sums this up in a very memorable succinct but rich couple phrases here in verse 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. You're trying to understand what the role and effectiveness and, and ability of Paul and Apollos and these different leaders that you've had are. Well, here it is. Seeds need to go out. Seeds need to be planted. The truth about who God is and what He's done need to be communicated. Need to be, this, these seeds need to be watered. But anything that comes of this, in this analogy, the growth comes from God. Now, we don't really know. I mean, in this analogy, we don't have the sun. So perhaps Paul is thinking of that God is the sun that makes plants grow. We don't really know. But the point is clear enough that without our efforts, or that our efforts to plant seeds, apart from God's work, are in essence planting a rock and hoping it'll turn into a plant. We are helpless. There is no life-giving power in us. There's no spiritual awakening power in us no ability to make someone go from rejecting God to embracing God, from finding the cross to be foolish and offensive and, and insignificant to embracing it as the height of God's wisdom and power. We don't have that ability. We can't change hearts. Only God can effectively call and save and change people. And this bears immediately on the issue going on among the Corinthians, their divisiveness, their factions. And so Paul's going to draw two conclusions from it. Verse 7, So neither he who plants, whether Paul, nor he who waters, Paulos, is anything, but only God who gives the growth. In other words, there's, there's no reason to make much of and identify yourself with Paul or Apollos or any individual as if their giftedness, their wit and wisdom, their persuasiveness and personality could bring about real spiritual change and growth. Only God gives the growth. Paul goes on, He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. So not only does he say that these various teachers and communicators and people that you look up to as having been influential among you, 
Not only does Paul say that they're nothing, they deserve no credit, including himself, they are also one. There's no division between them. They're not competing. They're working towards the same end. They are fellow workers of God. They, they are one. Now, that doesn't mean each of their lives and ministries and churches look the same. God, God works in different ways. They may have different abilities, different giftings, different tasks, different fruit that comes about as God ordains. Some may see lots of fruit. Some may struggle to see any fruit. But they are unified in their purpose. And that purpose is not to build a huge following, a large and impressive movement or influential church. That, pers- that purpose is not to gain the respect of the world, of the culture. No, the purpose is to proclaim Christ and Him crucified and call people to boast in Him and Him alone. Him and Him alone. And so for us, as Christians, and as groups of Christians gathered in local churches, we are unified in the same purpose with other believers, with other churches. We're not competing. We are not on different teams from other believers and other churches as long as they are proclaiming, preaching God's Word and proclaiming the gospel and calling people to faith in that. Okay, I hope the point of that passage is clear enough. I, it's, a, it's a simple but significant truth that we find there. This is God's Word. It's powerful and effective, and it's for us just as much as it was for the Corinthians. And so I want to draw out three conclusions from this, just address them specifically. First and foremost, this has to do with, as it does in the context here, with how we view Christian leadership, Christian authority figures, those who have impacted our life. What sort of credit, what sort of glory, honor, perhaps even idolatry and worship do we tend to give them? In what ways are we tempted to find our identity with and to identify with Christian leaders and authority figures and communicators and influencers or whatever? And of course, this is as relevant as ever in our culture of celebrity, in our culture of online churches, of our culture of there being hundreds if not thousands of people out there that you could go listen to, teach, and proclaim the Bible, or what is perhaps claimed to be the Bible. But it's ultimately relevant because of our hearts, because the tendency of our hearts is to make much of men, to give glory to men that is ultimately reserved for God. You're probably aware that part of the reason that we are so drawn to celebrities, that there is such a thing as celebrity, is that Famous and interesting and powerful and influential people kind of make us feel better about ourselves, too. Right? That as we kind of make much of them and tacitly identify ourselves with them, like, oh, I'm 
that kind of, I'm the person that likes that person. As we do that, we are also making much of ourselves. Or at least we're feeling better about ourselves. And I'm not going to go away into that psychology of that, but if we're not careful, we grant glory to men and women that is reserved for God alone. We begin boasting in and making much of men and women where we are supposed to make much of God. And specifically when we're thinking about in the church, in terms of spiritual growth and life change, if there is any real growth happening, if there is any real heart and life change, new birth happening as a result of any individual, as a result of any ministry or church, it is not due to the greatness and wisdom or impressiveness or persuasiveness of any individual. And God alone gives the growth through his word, clearly explained and applied. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that this is relevant to all of us, that somewhere in our hearts we, we give glory to men that is reserved for God alone. I think one of, this, one of the particular ways that this is seen today is how we view churches and ministries and, and communicators that are just out there online, that are not local. This should keep us from thinking that it's better to follow a church or ministry or individual far away because of how impressive they are than thinking it's better to get engaged with a church in our community that may not be as impressive. A, a local church in your community may not have all of the resources and talent, may not have all of the range of ministries or the appeal of churches online, but that really shouldn't be what we're looking for in a church. What matters is not the impressiveness of a church or a preacher or communicator, but whether or not we are being fed God's word and whether or not we are being called to and live that out and living that out in faithfulness. A second application. Persevere in giving witness to the gospel, even when fruit seems meager or impossible. Persevere in giving witness to God and the gospel, even when any, any fruit seems meager or impossible. So these complementary truths that we've seen, that we are powerless in this and that God must work, that God is powerful, are actually just the motivation we need to continue on and persevere in bold witness. And, and I don't just mean the work that pastors do or those who have leadership positions. I mean you in your prayers for your unbelieving friends and family. You in your desire to turn conversations to God and His grace. In your everyday mundane faithfulness to honor God in your life, to give witness to Him in your work, at home, at school. Let me explain a little bit. For one, if you think that it's within your power and ability to bring about spiritual new birth and fruit in someone's life, 
you will quickly lose motivation when you don't see fruit, whether immediate fruit or regular fruit, or when you think that when it seems that someone is too far gone, too hardened against God and the gospel. If you think it's ultimately up to you and something you can do, you will lose that confidence quickly. But if your hope is in God, no individual is too far gone, no heart is too hardened for the Spirit of God to capture. No fruit is too slow or infrequent to keep you from continuing to faithfully get witness. We continue because we know it is ultimately up to God. Additionally, if you think it is within your power and ability to bring about the salvation or real spiritual fruit in someone's life, you will be tempted to use whatever means possible to bring about results, or at least what seem like results. And so you'll try to manipulate emotions and force decisions. You'll change the message to be more attractive and less foolish-seeming. You'll perhaps only present the benefits it gives to people. And there are benefits to the gospel, of course, but you might downplay the holiness and the worth of God. As a church, you might turn to entertainment and production value and various techniques to draw people in and keep them coming back. And you'll be tempted to claim that God is really at work because, well, decisions are being made, the crowds keep coming, there seems to be excitement. We figured out what works. But if you know that you are powerless to bring about change and must rely on God to bring the growth, you'll continue to use God's means even when fruit is slow, even when you're discouraged, even when it's rejected. And you'll trust God with the results. And then third and finally, we shouldn't leave this passage without rejoicing that God is at work and that God is the one that must work and that that is good news. That God is not limited by our weaknesses, by our fears, by our timidness, by our continuing struggle with sin, by our lack of knowledge, our smallness or insignificance. All of the things that cause us to doubt whether God can really do anything, all of the things about ourselves, all of the things that we see in front of us, they're not a problem for God. The, the times of little visible fruit, the times of just continuing on faithfully but not knowing if anything is happening, happening not a problem for God. And there's actually a great illustration of this um, in the life of Paul actually as he's planting this church in Corinth. In Acts 18, um, Paul has some opposition, as he did often, to his preaching of the gospel. Uh, he is opposed and reviled in Corinth. Things were not going well. And in Acts 18, Acts 18 verse 9, we read, The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. 
So Paul's hope, at least if he, if he heeded what God had to say here, Paul's hope and confidence to continue speaking of Christ were not to be in himself, were not to be in his assessment of the situation before him, but in God and his promise to draw people to himself. God says that he has many who are his in this city, that he would use Paul in his preaching. And so Paul just couldn't sit back and be like, well, all right, God, do your work. No, God would use Paul, but Paul had confidence to do his work and to continue despite opposition because of God's promise. And so he kept going. And it's interesting to think that if Paul had not trusted God, but rather trusted himself and what he saw in front of him, whether we'd be talking about the Corinthians today or not. And it seems appropriate to surmise that God still has people even here in our community, in our cities, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces, who are His. And because it is up to God, because God is at work, God promises to work, to be working, to be drawing people to Himself, we have the motivation we need to work as well. Not because we trust in our efforts or our wisdom or our abilities and our greatness, but because we trust in God. We are all servants of God, called to give witness to God. Um, whether through our lives and our witness as we live and as we love and as we love as we've been loved, as we give evidence to following God's will in our lives, as we fight against jealousy and strife amongst ourselves, yes, we will struggle with these things. Our lives in ways mirror the Corinthians and they're out of step with the Spirit at times. But we, we confess and we fight against that and we pray. Also with our words as we communicate and share the good news of the gospel with others and we pray for them and we walk with them patiently willing to ask questions and and be there with them in all of these ways and more as we are planting seeds perhaps watering seeds after they've been planted but then we trust god with the growth we live in faithfulness and leave the results up to god confident that He is working. So we're going to take communion now. And one of the ways that we celebrate in communion is celebrate the miraculous work of God to change us from His enemies, from those set against Him, from those living merely for ourselves, to those living for Him and boasting in Him. This is the real change, the real spiritual fruit that only God did in each one of your lives that He gets credit for. We're going to celebrate that together. Communion is a way for us to continually and regularly boast in, make much of God in saving us through the blood and body of Christ. So if you've trusted Christ, this is a time to celebrate. Um, if you have not, we're glad you're here and would love to talk to you about that. Let's pray.